Good morning, everybody. We are in the middle of a series about the core values of our church, those um, qualities that guide us as we walk with Jesus together and, and that we look at to be our, our calling card, that we look at to be the things that, that are distinctive characteristics about First Alliance Church. And, and I want to just uh, mention to you that as you open your bulletin this morning, you'll find in there a card. Uh, though that card looks a lot like the, uh, the poster right above the door over here because it has on the front there the list of our core values as a church and on the back uh, a short one-sentence description of each one of them. Uh, also, what we do at our house, did, uh, we, you know, we take the, that and we put magnets on the back of it and put it on our fridge. And so if you would like to do that, on the wicker table out there is a basket full of magnets. And so on the way out, if you want to take those stick of magnets and put them on the back of the card and put them up on your fridge or wherever else, you might want to look at them from time to time. I think that would be, uh, that would be helpful. We want you guys to be able to recite these and understand them um, because it's who we are as a church. Uh, last Sunday, I, I, got, I got kind of cute with you, <clears throat> and I didn't mention the core value that we were talking about until almost the very end of the sermon. Well, this week, I'm going to be a lot more straightforward and just tell you right off the bat that we're going to be talking about compassion today. Compassion. Uh, it's going to be a while before we get to the main Bible passage for today, because what I'd like to do is, is give you first some historical context, which uh, many of you may find interesting. Hopefully you will. Um, not just interesting, but perhaps helpful in understanding your faith and helpful in understanding um, how you might be able to even defend your faith in some ways and have discussions with non-Christian friends. Uh, that's how we're going to start. After that, uh, I, I want to talk about what compassion is, what biblical compassion is, what is the nature of it. And then finally, we'll, we'll end up by talking about a couple of compassion killers those things that get into our lives and keep us from having the compassion for other people that we should. And as we discuss that, we'll talk about how we can cultivate compassion in our own selves, in our own lives. Um, and and as, I, as, I talk, as I go back in history a couple thousand years here, I will tell you this, that, that much of what I'm going to be sharing with you today comes from a book that I'm reading, and very often I like to, to uh, recommend books to you. This one I would definitely recommend. It's a book by a guy named Glenn Scrivener, and uh, it's not going to be come up on the screen, but you can write down the the title if you want. It's pretty easy. It's called The Air We Breathe. The Air We Breathe. And the subtitle is How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality. So if you just Google or go out on Amazon and look for The Air We Breathe, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Uh, but the, um, the world that Jesus was born into, which was, of course, the world of ancient Rome, was a merciless and brutal place. Uh, Dawn and I got to go to uh, the Roman Colosseum a few years ago, uh, and, and as you go to that structure and you look at how magnificent it is, it's very easy to get carried away by the architecture and the engineering and how they set everything up, and then to forget what actually went on in that arena. People would be screaming at the top of their lungs and cheering wildly while men would take each other's lives, or they would be hunted down and executed. Or they would be being ripped to pieces by wild animals, and the crowd would just be going crazy. That, that was their NASCAR. That was their NFL. You can also look at the way that that society treated newborn infants. It was very, very common back then for little babies to be thrown out into the street 
or into the garbage dumps to die because they were deformed or because they didn't seem to be thriving or sometimes just because they were girls. These, the great philosophers of the day, you know, the men we look back to as the great thinkers in the Western world, the ones on, on whose thinking Greco-Roman society was built, people like Plato and Aristotle, they were completely fine with all this. In fact, they thought it was a good thing. Listen to what Plato said. Plato said that if a child was not deemed to be malleable, disposed to virtue, and physically fit, it should be properly disposed of in secret. Aristotle actually argued for a law that would forbid parents from bringing up a deformed child and said that instead those babies need to be exposed, which back then typically meant being placed on rubbish heaps, abandoned on hillsides, thrown down wells, or drowned in rivers. So you can see the compassion. Compassion in the sense of caring about and caring for the weak and the helpless was not a prized virtue. This was true really in every culture all over the world, but especially not in the Roman world. I mean, it was actually compassion in Rome and in those days was, was more apt to be laughed at and ridiculed. You didn't climb the ranks of power in ancient Rome by being compassionate. That was about the dumbest thing you could do. So what changed? What changed? I mean, what changed in the Western world? Why 2,000 years later does it horrify us to even think about the carnage of the Colosseum or the, the discarding of infants? Why is compassion a virtue today? Why do we say today that we judge the greatness of a society by how well it treats its weakest members? You may have heard that. Why do we say that? What has changed? The very clear answer, historically speaking, it's very simple. It's Christianity. This is attested to by non-Christian historians as well as Christian ones. As the gospel began to take root in the Roman world and even in some of the surrounding areas, and as Christians started following the example of their compassionate king, people began to change. People began to take notice, and the world began to change. When a 4th century Christian by the name of Telemachus ran out into the arena and stood between the gladiators to try to stop the carnage, he was promptly stoned to death by the crowd. But his sacrifice caught the attention of many people, including the emperor Honorius, and within a generation, the games were done away with, largely if not exclusively because of the influence of the Christian church. It was the same with the unwanted infants and the, the children. When a nun named Macrina began touring the garbage dumps and rescuing and adopting abandoned babies, she was an inspiration, but she wasn't the only one doing it. Christians began doing this en masse. And starting in the fourth century, there was an explosion in the number of hospitals and orphanages and clinics and other institutions of mercy. Virtually every one of them started by Christians in the name of Jesus. Meanwhile, the Christian churches would take up collections to help the poor, but not just their own poor. They would take up collections to help the poor in the entire community. And that kind of giving outside of your clan, outside of your tribe, outside of your group was almost unheard of back then. But eventually it caught on. Such that today, compassion is, of course, considered a virtue, especially in the West. And yet in the last hundred years or so, is it possible that compassion is starting to out where it's welcome? We need look no further than Nazi Germany to find a movement in which compassion was utterly disregarded. And we wonder how that could happen in a country that had known Christianity 
for so long. And then, of course, today as we look around the world, we see, I, I would say we see a marked increase in what we would probably call inhumanity. Inhumane ways people treat one another. At, at the extreme, of course, that comes from things like mass killings that are carried out by compassionless sociopaths. But really, more commonly, it's seen in the way people seem to be hiving off right into their own subcultures and tribes and using increasingly vicious and even dehumanizing language to talk about the people who don't agree with us. And that's happening at both ends of the political spectrum. It seems that more and more we are losing the ability to put ourselves into the shoes of someone else and see life from their point of view, which is an absolute requirement if we're going to have any kind of compassion for anybody. Is it possible this is happening? Is it possible we are slowly losing our sense of compassion as a society because we have abandoned the foundation of it? Philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche Who's, I've quoted him before, but his thought has been extremely influential in academia and other places in the last 150 years or so. He believed that compassion was a disease that kept humanity from achieving its full potential because it interrupted the process of evolution by not allowing us to get rid of the weak among us. He blamed this squarely on Christians who were always standing up for the weak, the low, and the botched. Popular author and philosopher Anne Rand also hated the idea of compassion. Some of you may have read a couple of her books, but she believed that compassion destroyed the dignity of the one being helped since human beings were meant to be self-sufficient, not dependent on someone else's pity. Recently, the famous biologist Richard Dawkins made headlines when he fielded a question from a woman who was concerned about the possibility at her age that she would have a high risk of conceiving a child with Down syndrome. Here was his answer to her. He said, if, if that happens, then abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you have that choice. And of course, that prompted an outcry from some corners. But Dawkins is just being consistent with his beliefs. Like Nietzsche and like Rand, he's an atheist. But at least he's being an honest atheist right? These people understood what we're just starting to figure out now, that ethically and morally, the dominant culture today is still trying to live off the fruit of Christianity, even though we've now cut down the tree that the fruit came from. The upshot of all this is that it's quite possible that in this increasingly post-Christian moment, we are heading for a season that in some ways is not unlike the latter days of the Roman Empire when we Christians might once again be able to distinguish ourselves by showing Christ-like compassion in a world where the traditional fountains of compassion are drying up. Or we can be a really bright light in an increasingly dark place if we can just get a handle on what it means to be truly compassionate to one another and to those around us. So, let's come down out of history now, come down to earth, and I want to move from, from, from the history of compassion to, to the nature of compassion. What are we talking about here? What is compassion? How do we define it? Well, the, the, the English word, I think, is certainly helpful, right? Come, passion, with, feeling. We're feeling along with somebody. We're entering into their passion, entering into their emotion, entering into their experience. So there's a sympathy involved, right? The New Testament word for compassion, just look at the Greek word, which is used of Jesus over and over and over, by the way. It's one of the most common adjectives or, or, or phrases to describe him as having compassion. It, the, the Greek word describes a beautiful idea, but it's not a very beautiful word. The Greek word for to feel compassion is splagnizomai. Isn't that pretty? Splagnizomai. 
over on our core values poster or on your card, what you have there is a picture of a heart, right, inside a little thing there. It, it really shouldn't be a heart. You know, what? It, it should be, to be accurate, it should be a kidney or a spleen or possibly some small intestines. And that's because splagnizomai comes from the word for your innards, like your digestive system. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because we all know when you really grip with emotion, where do you feel it? You don't feel it in your heart, right? Unless you've got an issue with your heart. Where do you feel it? You feel it in your gut. That's where you feel it. And that's what biblical compassion does. It grabs you by the gut. It's a gut-level emotion. And by the way, the verb is almost always used in the passive voice, which means it's not something you do. It's something that happens to you. It's something you're overcome by. Rather than having compassion, it always says Jesus was moved with compassion. It's a feeling. It was something that came over him and grabbed him by the gut in a powerful way. So that's my first big observation about biblical compassion. It's a gut-level emotion that just hits you. The other observation I'll make is this. In the Bible, compassion always results in action. It always results in action. Jesus, moved with compassion, touched the man and healed him. Jesus, moved with compassion, began to teach the people. The master in the parable, moved with compassion, forgave the debt of his servant. The good Samaritan, filled with compassion, met the needs of that broken and half-dead man he came across on the road. So putting it together, what is biblical compassion? Biblical compassion is a gut-level emotional response to another person's suffering that invariably leads to some kind of action. It's a gut-level response to someone else's pain that invariably leads to some kind of action. And by the way, the suffering or the need is not always of the physical variety and it's not always of the financial variety either. You do not have to be poor or sick to receive the compassion of Christ. One of the most striking times that Jesus was moved with compassion is when he looked out over a massive crowd of people. This happened a couple of times. And he saw them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so what was the action? What did he do? It says he taught them. He taught them. His concern here was not primarily with their physical or financial condition, although I'm sure there were sick people there and most of them were poor, but his concern was primarily with their ignorance and their directionlessness and ultimately their powerlessness. They were helpless. They had no way to dig themselves out of the hole they were in, and the hole was mostly a spiritual hole, and so he had compassion, and he taught them. I mention this to clarify that when Jesus shows compassion to someone, he does not destroy or violate their dignity unlike what Ayn Rand would say. He doesn't trap them forever in some kind of victim mentality. No, if you look at it, it said his compassion often led him to teach. And the teaching of Jesus was showing people what a a true, fully functioning and empowered human being could be. It restored people's dignity by pulling people's hearts out of the mundane pursuits of this world and giving them something higher to live for, something truly human. In the best sense of the word. And our compassion as a church, our compassion as a church can do the same thing. It can have that same end goal. Not just someone's immediate physical or financial need, although that's important, but ultimately their spiritual and their personal restoration. Our compassion needs to go that deep and go that far. Okay, let's, let's finally get to our text for this morning. It's not going to surprise you. It's in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and we'll read verses 25 to 37.
Luke 10, 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, to put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy, Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, this is, of course, a really familiar story probably to everybody here, but this time I want you to, to fixate so much not on the Samaritan, but I want you to think a little bit more about the priest and the Levite whom we meet before we meet the Samaritan. Um, because I, I want to ask this question and kind of look at it from this angle. What is it that keeps us from showing compassion? What are some common compassion killers that we all kind of fall into. Let, let me remind you of where these core values came from. You might ask, well, who, who came up with these five things? The short answer would be me. But let me explain. These five qualities were never my prescription for First Alliance Church. In other words, this is what we need to be. No, I, these were things that we already had. As I looked at the church after being here for a few years and I was trying, what kind of a church are we? These are things that, that already characterized us. We already had them with the possible exception of discipleship, which we were doing, but not as deliberately as we are now. I kind of foisted that one on you. But the other four, that's what we already were. And so as I try to kind of spur you on to love and good deeds today, as the, the Scripture says, a lot of this is not so much gaining something that we don't have, but hanging on to the qualities, in this case, the compassion, that already characterized First Alliance Church. I have been continually encouraged and inspired and challenged by you over the last 22 years as I have seen so many of you doing voluntarily and unprovoked what I get paid to do. I'll call or visit somebody, and I'll find out that three people have already beaten me to it. I'll, I'll, I'll suggest that we reach out to someone with a note or a meal, and I'll find out that I'm late to the party, and the church is already doing a great job of loving that person. I see Sunday school classes taking offerings for members with special needs. I have people joining brothers and sisters at the altar up here and, and crying with them. And I think, you know what, when it comes to concern and compassion, this place has got it going on. You always have. So... And I know you've been to church here, you know, a lot of you for a long time, and I have too, but I've been to some other churches too, and you're a compassionate group. So let's not just keep it, but let's make it stronger and make sure we pass it on to the next generation. All right, let's, let's think about what might have happened to the priest and the Levite. What might have happened to these two guys who flunked the compassion test in Jesus' parable? It's interesting here, Jesus does not pick on the usual suspects. When you think about Jesus' like, enemies or his detractors or what, what group he's usually contrasting with, who would that be? 
the Pharisees, right? He doesn't go after the Pharisees here, as you might expect. Instead, he goes after a priest and a Levite. You see, the Pharisees tended to be middle-class lay people who really did rub shoulders more often with the common people. The priests and the Levites, on the other hand, they had a more formal status, and they were part of the, the religious hierarchy. And so they were kind of formally speaking, they were up a level from the Pharisees. And so the first thing we can note about these men is that they were important. They were important people. They had an important job. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being important. A lot of people have important jobs. The problem happens when you become self-important. And that's what happened here. When you become self-important, your high position makes you so far above other people, at least in your mind, that there is no way you can relate to them. And so there's no way you can show them compassion. The other thing that self-importance does is, is it makes you imagine that you don't have the time for people because it would be a waste of your precious time to deal with them. Self-importance tends to make us very busy or sometimes to assume that we're busier than we really are. Why? Because our work is so critical and our work, you know, we're the ones keeping the world moving. So, so somebody else is going to have to do the job of engaging with these other bothersome people. As someone who by nature is not extremely compassionate, and I've had to, to, to learn this, one of the disciplines that I try to maintain is that when someone comes to the church building looking for help, usually financial help, and I'm in the office, I, I try most of the time to come out of my office and get involved. I'll help someone fill out a request form, or I'll pray with them, I'll listen to their story, I'll spend some time with them, sometimes I'll try to share the gospel with them. Not every time do I do this, but most of the time I try. And it isn't because the other staff members can't handle it, because they do a great job of it, and they certainly can. It's because I know that in order to maintain some level of warmth in my heart for hurting people, I need to actually engage with them. Let me step all over your toes for a second if you're a parent, okay? My own parents, they were the best parents, honestly, that, that anyone could ever hope to have. My parents were the most hardworking, diligent, energetic, involved, loving, self-sacrificing parents that anyone could ever imagine. Some of you have met them, and, and you know that. I would never give that back. I, was, I am so privileged to have the parents that I did. But, and I cannot lay this totally at their feet because I definitely took the ball and ran with it, I knew that I was their priority and my brother's. In some respect, we were, we were a huge priority to them. And at some point along the line, I began to imagine that I was the center of my world. And that's one reason that, that feeling and showing compassion, although I've grown a lot in this area over the years, has always been slow for me. It's always been something of a struggle. Parents, parents, if you make your children the center of your world, they may very well end up being at the center of their own world as well. If your life becomes completely absorbed in your children, they are probably more likely to end up being self-absorbed and therefore less compassionate. And I will tell you, for the most part, the other influences in their life, from school to social media, are going to reinforce the idea that their rights and their privileges are number one. It's going to take some work on your part to make sure your children get the opportunity to be around hurting, needy, or lonely people. 
and to give them ways to show mercy and compassion, whether it's volunteering, whether it's creatively including them in your charitable giving, whether it's just when you encounter people who are down a rung on the ladder from where you are in society to make sure that you avoid using dismissive, insulting, or dehumanizing language to refer to those people and to remind your children out loud that every single person they ever meet is made in the image of God and has the exact same value and importance as they do. They need to know that. And I will tell you something. That truth, despite what the Declaration of Independence says, is not self-evident. Throughout history and across culture, it has never been self-evident that everyone has the same worth and dignity. That truth came from the Bible. It came from Jesus, and it needs to be taught and reinforced to our young people, even if it means pulling them down off of the achievement merry-go-round for a while to get their attention. It is hard for any of us to feel compassion for people with whom we feel we have nothing in common or that they're somehow on a different plane. No, the Bible says we're all on the same plane. And without that sense of equality and the humility comes with it, it is almost impossible to feel compassion. Let's move on. Not only were the priests and Levites self-important people, they were also fearful. And fear is a huge compassion killer. And actually, there are a couple different things to be afraid of here. First, this is very unusual. Did you notice that Jesus actually anchors this parable in a specific geographical location? This happens, he says, on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notorious as a very dangerous, high-crime area. People were assaulted and robbed there all the time. This was the wrong side of the tracks. So if you stopped to help somebody in this place, you were taking a real risk. It was quite possible that these robbers were waiting behind the next rock ready to attack anybody that came and helped this poor man. And the priest and the Levite did not want any part of that risk. In fact, they probably sped up and looked around warily as they passed the man's position. Brothers and sisters... There are times when showing compassion might involve traveling to places that might actually put you in danger, or at least in more danger than you're used to, whether you're going to the inner city or a foreign country. This means that your faith in Jesus is going to have to be stronger than your fear of the unknown or your fear of physical peril. I don't know how else to say it. The question becomes, can God protect you or not? But you know, it also takes faith to get past the other fear, which is maybe the more common one, and that's called the fear of getting involved, right? Notice where the priest and the Levite passed by on the other side. They actually crossed the street because the last thing they want to do is to look this fellow in the eye. You know, the, the best way, I'll give you some advice. The best way to make sure you never get a compassionate heart, the best way to make sure that you never have that gut feeling is to make sure you stay away, as far away from hurting people as possible. That'll work. Don't get sucked into the vortex of their needs. That will cost you time. It'll cost you inconvenience. It may even cost you money. Look at what happened to this poor Samaritan. He had to bandage the wounds. He had to use his own oil and wine. Even his donkey got sucked into the ordeal. The donkey's like, why are you bringing me into this? And it cost him money, probably about $150 in today's economy to do this. Not only that, but he had to come back and out of his way again and check on the guy on the way back, which would probably end up costing even more inconvenience and more time and more money. And what if this led to some sort of long-term commitment of some kind with this guy? Oh, my goodness. It takes faith to stop and actually engage somebody, doesn't it? 
You have to believe that God will make up for the lost time and money that showing compassion might involve. You have to believe that God will help you with the awkwardness and the unknown issues that might arise in conversation. It takes faith to cross the street and look somebody in the eye, not just throw up a prayer from 50 feet away. Although fervent prayer is indeed a good investment of compassion. It takes faith to ask a follow-up question when you're afraid that the person's answer might obligate you to do more. It takes faith to make that visit when you're not sure how it's going to be received or what you're going to be walking into when you arrive. It takes faith to explore what someone's financial need might be when you're afraid you might be part of helping to meet it. It takes faith that God will supply whatever you need. Do you have that? Do you believe that? But you know what I found? The more time I spend with hurting people, the more I engage with them, the more around them I am, the more compassionate I become. The more likely it is that that gut response will happen. On the other hand, the more I stay away from hurting people, the harder my heart can become. Fortunately for me and my vocation, I don't have a choice. And I'm glad for that. But in your case, you might have to make more of a deliberate effort to engage. And I'm guessing that most of you are like me. You have to stay engaged to keep your heart warm with compassion. Now, that's not everybody, because you know this as well as I do. There are a few people, several in this church that I can think of. I'm, I'm going to try not to look at you. These people just kind of bleed compassion, right? It just comes, it's... This is a serious burden for them. In fact, it's actually a spiritual gift. They just have great big hearts, and they cannot help but feel sympathy and compassion all the time for everyone around them. And so they're always running around meeting needs or maybe trying to get other people to help them meet the needs of others. That's what they do. These people are especially sensitive to the pain of other people. And sometimes it gets them down and they get really burdened and heavy. And they can even end up being kind of depressed. And you know what we do? You know who these people are. And, and our tendency with them... I think, is to go all pop psychology on them and say, you know what, you just need to get away and take some time by yourself. Just make sure you're loving on yourself, and, and, and that way you won't get so beat up from sharing everybody else's burdens. Well, yes, it's true that all of us need to spend time alone with God and learn a healthy rhythm of life, sure. But in, in my experience, in my experience, those super compassionate people, they don't need to be told to prioritize their own emotional health. They already know that. A lot of people have told them that. What they really need is your encouragement. They need your encouragement. Listen, you are not going to stop them from getting sucked into other people's lives and bearing their burdens. You just won't because that's what they do. They can't stop it. What you can do is let them know that you love them, that you're thankful for them, that you appreciate what they're doing, and most importantly, that they're making a difference. Because the number one cause of compassion fatigue is not so much physical or emotional exhaustion, but the feeling that you are continually pouring yourself into other people and nothing is changing. So encouraging them by letting them know that they are making a difference is one of the primary ways that the body of Christ can minister to those special people among us who are the compassion machines. We can also probably learn a few things from them as well. So let me close this morning by just reminding you of a couple of things about the King of Compassion, Jesus. Do you remember the topic of Jesus' first 
church sermon. Well, synagogue sermon, right? He was in a synagogue in Nazareth, and it's his first sermon that, that Luke records for us at least. And what was the topic of that sermon? Do you remember? His text was, he got out the Bible, and his text was Isaiah 61. And he said this, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he said, these verses are about me. Now, Jesus could have used any number of Old Testament passages about the Messiah to announce his coming onto the scene, but he chose that one. He chose the one about helping the poor and the blind and the captives and the oppressed. He chose the one about compassion. What he was saying was, here I am, compassion is now among you. You see, Jesus was compassion incarnate. He was compassion defined. And eventually, his compassion was going to go so far that it was going to take him all the way to a Roman cross where he would give up absolutely everything to save and restore broken and helpless and lost people like you and me. And as we said before, to be on the receiving end of Jesus' compassion does not destroy our self-worth or our human dignity. On the other hand, it definitely destroys our pride. It definitely insults our pride. Right? Because to be part of what Jesus is doing, to receive what he's offering, it is a necessity. We need to own up to the fact that we are helpless and poor and pitiful and blind. Maybe not physically, but spiritually. Do you want to be compassionate? Yes, it's important to understand what real compassion is. It's important to, to beware of these compassion killers that get into our lives and keep it from happening. But more foundationally, we learn to give compassion by first receiving it from Jesus in a way that breaks our pride, highlights our sinfulness, and puts us on the same level with everybody else, beggars at the feast. And we can love others despite their sin and failure because despite our sin and failure, we have been loved more than we would have ever dreamed. Let's pray.